So I like everything. The only thing I don't like in food, and just lucky it's not French, is tofu. <laughs> I don't like the texture, but I don't know why we have to eat something if it, if it doesn't give you pleasure. I'm Lynette Hoffman, and this is Beyond the Table, the podcast that explores some of the most interesting food that I find and the stories of the people who create it. Today I'm in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains. I've been living here for nearly a year, and I have to admit, it's not exactly a foodie destination, which of course also means that there's certainly space in the market for fine food. So today I'm here with Monique Delaney now, but born Marchand. Monique and her partner Ross are the owners of The Rooster, a quaint French restaurant in the Blue Mountains. When you go to The Rooster, you leave, hit something in your plate and there will be three to five different ingredients. That's it. I'm not pedantic, I'm a purist of French food. Don't you come and mix things that don't belong together. No Japanese influence. I love Japanese food, but don't mix it with my French. Monique is 68, and she and Ross bought the restaurant nearly four years ago on a whim. Well, it came up for sale, and I was having a ball here, reading a lot and doing my garden and going to Sydney when I feel like it, because I need both. Uh, and then Ross tell me uh, in the morning, oh, the rooster is for sale. I said, oh, what a pity. And he said, why don't we buy it? Yeah, why not? We thought, yeah, we'll put something back in, in to Katoomba. Monique and Ross moved to Katoomba 14 years ago. They'd been running a bottle shop and deli in Darlinghurst. And they wanted space for a garden and a better school for their son, Julian, who has Down syndrome. Katoomba provided both. Julian is... He can't get lost. Everybody knows him. Everybody's nice to him. We know where he goes. And he said, oh, yeah, and there is unemployment here. You know, maybe we can employ some local. It didn't work out, by the way. So we bought it, and I wanted to restore it as well, which we did, because it had aluminium windows, and I hate aluminium windows. <laughs> so that's why we have it. We never had a restaurant. And I thought, well, actually, I'm an old woman now, and I want to leave something, and it's going to be to teach people to eat fine food. Pleasure of the flesh. That's something Monique found distinctly missing when she first arrived in Australia. We'll get to her food culture shock later, but first I want you to hear about the journey that brought her where she is today. My family is from around Paris originally, but I grew up in West Africa. She was raised in Ivory Coast. In our family, from my great-great-grandfather on, there was always one traveller who went everywhere. And uh, my grandfather went to Africa, my father went to Africa. Yeah, loved it. Still love it. So have you spent much time in France as well? Uh, always back there. French is my, my culture, my food, my literature. Um, Africa, it's my, my senses, colours, smell. You know, childhood. Monique carried on the family tradition of travel. She studied language and literature at university and travelled throughout her 20s. Lived in London for a year. 
I went back to France. Lived in London for a year, lived in the German-speaking part of Switzerland for two years, went to West Berlin for five years, flew to Bangkok, and then with my backpack, came to Australia with a two-month visa. I'm not a boat person because I caught a plane, but I didn't come with the papers that I should have had. And I'm still here 40 years later. But then I'm white, you see. So are you legally here or not? I'm a permanent resident. I am not an Australian, as I don't see why I should be an Australian uh, without consulting with Aborigines first. My ethical conviction would not allow me to vote. But I do campaign a lot, and I'm very active politically. She was 27 when she arrived in Australia. And I came here by accident, by the way. I came here because my father was here, was living in New Caledonia at the time with his partner, and she became very unwell, so they came here. And I was on my way to New Caledonia because I was sick of speaking German or English. I wanted to speak French and to have some son. And I came to see my father here, and he said, well, you know, you don't like races, don't go there, it's worse than in Africa. And I said, oh, God. And then the father of my child and myself, we, we separated four months after our son was born. He started a relationship with an Australian woman, and I uh, didn't want to take uh, our son away from his father. So I stayed. So tell me about how you ended up where you are now. Ah, Okay. I arrived in Darwin, for start, a year after Tracy. Six months in Asia, 80% of the population were builders' laborers. With short shorts, you could see their bum line there when they were bending over. Big, big, <laughs> you know. Uh, very white, most of them. And I remember at the airport, too, they came and spread us on the plane, Two men wearing a tie, short sleeve shirts, shorts, long socks turned over, and shoes with laces. And I thought, where am I? <laughs> I just couldn't. I've never forgotten this vision, <laughs> you know. After two months in Darwin, she went to visit her father, who had a property near Armadale in country New South Wales. That's where her first son was born. And uh, then I went a bit everywhere. She travelled a lot around Australia. She was active in the women's movement and worked in women's shelters in Sydney and in Tasmania. Eventually, she found her way back to Armadale, which is inland about six hours from Sydney. Then moved to Armadale with Ross, my current partner. There was another one in between, but I forgot him. (laughs) And um, one day I had enough of the rednecks. Armidale is just, yeah, it's got pretty colours in autumn, but it's far from everywhere. It's uh, really far from everywhere. You can't go down to Sydney to see a concert or anything like that, or an exhibition. It's, it's, you know. At that point, she'd just about had enough of Australia. Yeah, the French did their nuclear testing in Morura, and I was against it. I've always been against it. And at the time, I was doing some work for the university, and there was a, there was a rally against nuclear testing. And I felt I could only go there if my friends were accompanying me. There was such an anti-French movement, totally oblivious of what other people may, may think. And uh, I thought, shit, you know, I was 
you know, on one hand, there was this Francophilia that was extreme, and in another hand, there was this latent anti-French movement or xenophobic movement that came up. And I said, oh, I can't win here. I've had enough. I've had enough of Australia. I want to leave. And I said to Ross, I want to go. I want to go. I want to leave. I've had enough. I'm not raising my kids here. And uh, I said, oh, why don't we try some, something else? Why don't we go to Sydney? And anyway, we didn't know what to do. I wanted an antique shop. He didn't want me to have an antique shop because I would have kept everything for myself. <laughs> and we ended up having a bottle wine deli, bottle shop deli in uh, Taylor Square. So just for reference, Taylor Square is in the neighbourhood of Darlinghurst, which is sort of a trendy gay hub in downtown Sydney. And we moved there. It was a trial only for me, you know, and I never looked back. I said, ah, well, if this is Australia, it's, it's OK, I can stay a bit longer, and I'm still here. <laughs> so we lived in Taylor Square, and uh, I needed a bit of gardening. So we looked for a place somewhere. So we did the mountain from the bottom to here, and when we came here, it was misty, and the roads were windy. And I said, here. And so you'd never had a restaurant before? Mm-mm. But had you always been interested in food? and Absolutely. With my parents, we used to go to France every year for two months. One month for the family and one month to eat. And we'd get in the car, my mother, my father, my sister and myself, and drove with our map of restaurants and eat. Oh, that so sounds food amazing. Is very important. <laughs> and I suffered when I came here because I had my first Australian meal in hospital when I had Dennis. And when never forget lifting the thing in the morning, you know, this metal thing on top of your plate, to look at my breakfast. And there were, there were sausages, so that was very strange for breakfast. Sausages, very cooked. Uh, translucent mashed potato, meaning no butter, no, no cream, no nothing. Pumpkin, which... As a child, I knew as pig food, except in cakes or in soup, you know. But then I got to like it at the end. And fluorescent peas. And I thought, they hate me. They hate me. There's got to be something. <laughs> so I put the metal lid back in, back on. So that was, that was your first baby? My, my first your... baby and my first Australian That million. does sound like a horrible experience. It was a horrible experience, yeah. <laughs> Dennis was born in Armidale, and uh, I lived on the property with my father in Kingston. And that was okay because uh, we were eating kangaroo and rabbit. We used to kill two kangaroos a year, some for the pigs, for the dogs, some for us, and rabbits for us. Uh, Apart from that, at this time, there was a a Greek man who had a vegetable shop in Urala, which is 40k from Kingston. And you were the only one to have leeks. Leeks were not known, known here. There were no capsicum. There were no virgin. There were none of that. When you buy a coffee in a, in a petrol station, you could see the bottom of your cup. That was powdered coffee. You could see the, through it. The food was terrible. And I remember once going on a, on a journey, and that was in, in 80, 1980, so I came in 76, so four years later. We were three on a combi van. We went, well, with, with children, of course, or four. 
and we stopped in Armidale and somebody wanted and I went to get the the takeaway food. One had fish, one had poultry and one had meat. And I'll never forget this man who said to me, Gravy? And I said yes, I didn't quite know what gravy was and he hit that claddle. And he filled it up and he put some on the fish, some on the chicken and some on the meat. And I said, that's going to be something. And it was something. <laughs> so that's a bit the experience I had at the beginning. Then in Sydney it was better, you know. We could go shopping in Leichhardt and stuff like that. There were vegetables. And blah, 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 blah. But it was tough. Mm. It was very tough. And the meat was very tough because it was overcooked. Everything was overcooked. So, yeah, that's my experience with food here. So Sydney was better. Yeah. yeah. I think I feel like it has improved. It has improved. <laughs> but it's still dangerous in, when you travel inland, huh? Yeah. You be careful. <laughs> Very careful. <laughs> but, yeah, now for me, a good meal, I think about when I wake up the morning after saying, oh, that was a nice meal. That's a nice way to start the day. And now that she has her own restaurant, she's hoping to create that for others. Uh, at the rooster, I go constantly to try and test and make sure. Our chef is uh, Jean-Francois. He's from Basque-Land, Basque country. Very creative. Before he came to the rooster, Jean-Francois had his own French restaurant in Darlinghurst, right next door to the bottle shop that Monique and Ross owned. So when an opening for a chef came up, he was the first person that she rang. He's so enthusiastic. I mean, you know, he rings me at 11 and says, Oh, Momo, I'm thinking of something. What if we were to cook this and that? I found this fantastic mushroom or this or that. And I said, Let me, leave me alone. I'm sleeping. We'll talk. No, 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 no. What do you think? We could do this. We could do that. I had dinner at the Rooster on a windy Monday night. And Jean-Francois brought the food out himself. Jean-Francois has got his kitchen so well organized that he does five floor service a week to help me out. And I love when he does it because he can really tell people what he's serving them. I took Monique's recommendation and I had an entree of wild mushrooms, crispy fried ribbons of parsnip and a decadent parsnip puree that Jean-Francois poured into my bowl at the table. It was a perfect blend of crunch and creaminess and that flavor that you get when veggies are really fresh. Monique and Jean-Francois foraged for the mushrooms themselves in a secret location in the Blue Mountains. Yeah, French people never tell you when they get their mushrooms because <laughs> it's our spot. Actually, my spot because he's my chef. Normally when I eat at restaurants, I try to choose something that I've never had before and that sounds really unique and really different. But on this occasion, Monique suggested I get the rooster's version of steak and potato. She swore that I wouldn't regret it. I was skeptical, but I have to concede she was right. It was a cut of beef I hadn't heard of. Juicy, tender, smothered in fresh herbs and so much flavor. The food at the rooster is traditional French cuisine, but somewhat unusually for a French restaurant, there are several vegetarian dishes and even vegan dishes on the menu. One of the biggest challenges has been finding staff who are passionate about food and wine and skilled at service too. Originally, the vision for the rooster was to employ locals, but it's turned out that 
often the people who are interested and qualified were born overseas. But recently, the Australian government changed its policies. Now it's much more difficult to hire people who aren't already citizens or permanent residents. If there's one thing that gets Monique waxing political, that's it. I want to talk to you about staff. I'm totally angry with the government who decided to slash the four, five, seven visas. I'm very unhappy with the compromises to the Pauline Hanson and her ilk, you know, uh, jobs for Australians first. Give me the Australians who want to work in my restaurant. I need people who grew up having their meals at the dinner table and not McDonald's, thank you very much. I want my employees to know their wine, fine wine. They've got to know the difference in, between a sauce and a, and a jus, for example. Jus is a word à la mode, you know, everybody uses jus, even if it's sauce. It's a big difference, <laughs> big difference, <laughs> you know. This is why, too, I'm not going to slash the penalty rate of my employees because they bring me money and they do something that I can't do. I can eat very well, but I can't serve for the life of me. And it doesn't interest me. Um, I remember one Chantal and and uh, her husband were there, the customers from day one. And she had not ordered something, but her husband had, Andrew. And she, she was stealing everything. And it was a, a side of uh, carrot puree. And I said, i go and get her one in the kitchen. First time I tried to serve and the last time I came. And I said, come on, leave his puree alone and have yours. And she said, should I lick your thumb? Because my thumb was in the dish. And I said, oh. it's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> so I need people who can do it better. But staffing issues aside, the restaurant has brought a lot of joy. It's been an opportunity to meet travellers from all over the world. She's also been pleasantly surprised by how much Australian tastes have changed over the years. The thing I really like too is to see how things have changed for the Australian palate. We've got a lot of people who eat well. Once I was doing the tour to meet the people, introduce myself, and there was, we did... Uh, what is it? Uh, sweet bread. And my husband, being Australian, said, oh, it's not going to work, it's not going to work, because it would not have worked 30 years ago. In Armidale anyway. Anyway, it went really well, and I had good waiters at the time. He said, oh, Momo, we sold seven tonight, and that's an achievement, you know, to have... Australian eating sweet bread. And I went to this table and there was an older gentleman my age, or maybe a bit younger, and his partner, and introduced myself. He said, oh, I just realised you have sweet bread. I passed my order. I didn't know. I'd like, do you think I can change it? And I said, yeah, are you Australian? Yes. Oh, you love sweet bread? Yes. He said, oh, he said, I'm a member of a trap, trap club in Sydney. Beg your pardon? Yeah, yeah, there is a trap club. I can put you on the, on the site if you want, you know. It's a website where People publish which type of trap is done in which restaurant for the coming months. Are you interested to come and eat tripe? And I thought, I thought I'd never see the day. I'm so happy. We've come a long way since the days of unidentified gravy and translucent mashed potatoes. After a couple hours of chatting to Monique, I asked her a question that I often like to end interviews with. Is there anything else you'd like to add? That's it. You've got it all. But I want a good ending. You don't know how to end. <laughs> you don't have to end. Ask me the question I won't answer and let people guess. I'm not dead yet. So you can't close the interview. <laughs> bye bye. See you next time.
but it's not quite the end because I recorded this episode a little differently than usual. A friend of mine who owns a backpacker has often sent travelers to work for Monique for short periods of time. And he's actually the one who suggested that I interview her. When I met her back in May, I went to her house for the interview. And it wasn't until last week that I finally made it to the rooster. What was really fun about it was that Monique and I were able to meet at the restaurant and have dinner together. So we drank lots of red wine. We had a course of blue cheese that was whipped up almost like ice cream and served really cold with this beautiful plum jam on crusty French bread. It was cool to see how excited and proud she is of the food. The music in this episode was recorded at The Rooster, and it's a local musician, Julian Clement, who is a regular at The Rooster. He sings and plays with lots of emotion, and he plays French folk songs and ballads, and they're mostly about heartbreak, which I know because Monique brought over a printout of the lyrics in English so that I could sympathize with her while she shed a tear or two. And at other points, she would translate phrase by phrase when he sang protest songs or that sort of thing. So it's it was a fun night to see firsthand how passionate she is. And I'll leave you with Monique's response when I tried to describe this quick and easy and, in my opinion, really yummy dinner that I made the other night where I blended up yogurt, peas, tarragon and garlic and poured it on top of pasta with some chili flakes, some toasted pine nuts and a bit of Parmesan cheese and green beans. She wasn't really impressed. Okay. Oh, wait, I'm not a snob, but there's a limit. <laughs> You're not a snob at all, but I can't eat yogurt and tarragon and garlic. It's about survival of the species, darling. <laughs> you put the species in danger when you eat that. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Beyond the Table. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review. And if you have ideas for future guests, please do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Beyond the Table is finally on social media. Our Facebook page is Beyond the Table Podcast, and Instagram's the same. Twitter is Beyond the Tab Pod. So add us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I think you can even leave reviews on Facebook if you're so inclined. 